on the subject of how a person is supposed to intelligently, rationally, and emotionally confront the whole phenomena of suffering that comes into our lives, suffering that comes into our lives in terms of personal suffering, where we are, quote-unquote, the victim of the suffering directly, or where we are the victim of suffering in the sense that those that mean something to us, on whatever level it might be, are suffering, and therefore we suffer in their suffering. And the reality is is that you can most probably figure out from the fact that it's an eight-part series that there's a lot to, there's a lot to say about the subject, and there's a lot to work out. And therefore, even more true than in other circumstances and in other situations, we all come into this class this evening with lots of questions and few answers. And it's going to be critically important that we employ a certain amount of patience in the learning process. It's normal to want answers as quickly and, as, and in the most satisfying way as possible. However, in the ways of acquiring knowledge and in the ways of resolving difficult issues, speed is not one of the features that helps us deal with the problem. And in fact, in the first few lectures that we're going to go through, you might find yourself suffering. You might find yourself somewhat frustrated that the rabbi doesn't seem to be getting around to the point and he's beating around the bush and avoiding the issues. But I do make a commitment to, to face the issues head on. However, there's a lot of material that we need to go through as introductions, the reformulation of new premises, in how we approach questions that are major philosophical questions. We need to really put down a lot of foundations before we can intelligently approach the subject and then approach the subject head on and then in summation to the subject take everything that we know and then ask ourselves, okay, now that we're so intelligent about the subject, are we any better off? And can we cope in any better way? So really, there are really three subsections to this series. The foundations, establishing the premises upon which we can explore the question intelligently, then going into the issue head on, and then finally, in summation, trying to ask ourselves, putting it all together, can we cope better? Can we deal with it better? Are we better off now that we have the information, or are we still where we were before? And that's what we're going to try to do. Now, I'd like to also make a statement, okay, a statement that's a little bit difficult for me to make, and it's limited because I haven't made a decision about how much of my own personal life I should share at this point, because it's not an easy thing to do. But one thing is for certain, one thing is for certain, that nobody really has a right or could really legitimately discuss this subject unless they can say for themselves 
that they know what the experience is. Until a person goes through situations of suffering, until a person goes through situations of severe loss, until a person goes through situations, and believe me, I wish it upon nobody, but until a person goes through situations in which they face life-threatening situations, you really don't know where you're at and what it is that you believe and how well put together or how little put together you'll be in such a situation, and you can't even project it or predict it. So I just say one thing at the beginning of this class, that for better or for worse, I'm more intelligent on the subject today than I would have been if I would have had to deal with the subject two or three years ago. And I, I'm saying it because I want everybody to understand that I'm not coming from a place of being cold, aloof, abstract in my presentation, but many of the things that I will share, I will share from how these feelings became integrated or evolved in the personal experiences of suffering, etc., etc. And that's important, that's an important thing to say, because very often People that suffer and people that go through extreme situations, it's normal for them to think that theirs is the worst and the most unique, and they isolate themselves into thinking that there's nobody else that really can comprehend or be in the same place, and in a certain sense it's true. But we also have to know that the experience does touch in different ways many of us, and it's not an issue that, you know, you put it under your belt, you conquer it, and it's over. I think it's really a constant process of life, of constantly reviewing it and constantly, constantly dealing with it. And as we go through the series, I will share, you know, how I feel about different things that I'm saying so that, you know, we can get a sense of the possibility of this becoming integrated. Okay, getting into, getting into some of the laying the foundations for this subject, which will also, parenthetically, if I mentioned, I didn't mention it, it will get us into the Holocaust as well, because it is a subject that needs to be addressed. Okay. Obviously, the, su the subject of suffering, okay, and obviously where we think that it's undeserved, the subject of suffering really is is a subject that could be addressed along two paths. One way that it could be addressed is, hey, listen, get off my back. This is not comfortable. It's ruining my plans. It's just not what I put in on my order of life. And it's just not fitting into things. It's disturbing. It's very disturbing. It's, it's disturbingly painful. However you want to say it, but... A person can approach the subject of suffering is that it's an unwanted and an undesirable, and my resistance to the subject and my resistance to, the, to that existing is just because it's an undesirable. Finished. That's it. It's undesirable. However, taking it beyond the concept of it being undesirable, which is really an emotional resistance to the subject, a logical and a very understandable resistance to the subject, there is, for anybody that's rooted in faith, 
or anybody that attempts to have some roots in faith, it presents an almost impossible situation. How can I believe? If I believe what are the precepts of, of Judaism in terms of a belief in a God who is all-knowing and all-good and all-capable, etc., etc., how can I go along with that kind of belief and, in fact, desire a relationship with a, pers- with a God that I see in that sense and be able to fit that and reconcile that with God allowing, if not causing, certainly allowing undeserved and what seems to me unjustified suffering to take place in my life. And I I, want to be very clear about it. We have to make up in our minds as we enter the subject is the reason that we're sitting here because we're dealing with something that's undesirable, okay, which is understandable. But then, you know, talking about all kinds of philosophical premises and understandings is totally irrelevant because if it's undesirable, it's undesirable. And you can make the biggest speeches in the world, it's not going to become desirable. However, I believe that most of us, most of us, somewhere deep down, if not in the, in the apparent consciousness of our minds, wants to believe in a God, wants to have a relationship with God, and wants to have the desire to feel a love for God, but this issue of suffering seems to stand in the way. How can I love you how can I look up to you? How could I desire you? How could I rub shoulders with you? How could I be striving to pay attention to you? How could I want to mold my life after your dictates if when it comes to very real issues in my life, you're not there for me in the way that I think you should be there for me? And that already borders on a very, very critical issue being a philosophical one, It might be a religious emotional one, but it's also a philosophical one where I really want to know, where I have a deep desire to know truth, to relate to truth, to relate to God, but that there's something in the way that doesn't let me to relate to God in the way that I would like to if those things wouldn't be in my way. So the subject is really not only something that evokes a tremendous lack of desire on our part, but it's something that evokes within us a very, very deep disappointment in our ability to believe. I don't think that most people that, that feel that they really struggle with the concept of a relationship with God because there's unanswered questions and suffering are delighted with the fact that the questions are unanswered and therefore God, goodbye, I have nothing left to do with you. I don't think that anybody, okay, that really struggles honestly with the subject and because of it can't find within themselves the strength to have a relationship with God is happy about that set of circumstances. I think that we suffer disappointment and even going away and saying, well, I can't have this relationship because I don't have these questions answered, I don't think that going away makes us any happier. 
It's just that we express like this incapacity to be able to relate in a warm, intense way with God because we feel that the warmth and the intensity that we could have expected wasn't there. But it's not to say that walking away is any resolution to the problem. The disappointment, the anger, the bewilderment, the loneliness, all of that remains. Going away is not a solution. It doesn't solve anything. It answers nothing. And so when we begin this subject, the first thing that we need, okay, the first thing that we need to, to, to analyze here is we have a question. We have a philosophical question that stands somewhat separate in its investigation from our emotional needs and suffering. And we need to understand what the nature of a question is, period. The nature of any philosophical question, and especially when the question is a difficult one. The first thing that we need to know, and there's a lot of discussion about this in Jewish philosophy, is that we often think that our thought processes and the way that we present questions and the way that we explore material is very pure, that it has, it's in no way an expression of man's will or desire. It's pure intellectualism. It's pure rationalism. I, uh, I attach myself to something that's curious to me, for whatever reason it might be curious to me, and I explore it in a very objective, cool, calm, collected way. And the reality is that this is just not so. The reality is that most of the information that we have any kind of connection to in our lives, okay, to begin with, to begin with, was because there was some kind of interest and some kind of desire that pushes us in the direction of exploring it. If you go into a bookstore, just to use a simple example, okay, there are thousands of books in a bookstore, okay? And obviously you can't go through all of it, and I don't think you even want to go through all of it. So at which shelves do you stop, and at which shelves don't you stop? Well, in the pure technical sense, it's all academia, it's all information, it's all knowledge of some level or another. So if my intellectual pursuits would be coming from a pure objective place, so... I could stand over a Chinese cookbook the same way that I could stand over some Greek philosophy. But the reality is no, that one person will find himself pouring his interest over a a Chinese cookbook and another person over Plato or somebody else. And what makes the difference? Obviously what makes the difference is that there is another component besides the intellectual exploration. The other thing that is almost like a, a premise for the exploration intellectually is that I have to begin with a desire or a connection or an affinity to certain subjects and to certain material that engages my interest and the interest then sparks my intellectual exploration. How far does this concept go? This concept goes so far as our Talmud telling us 
Ein Adam Lomeid Elamasha Lipo that a person really can't learn something in Judaism. Okay? There are many areas, there are many categories, there are many specialties in Jewish education. But the Talmud tells us, Ein Adam Lomeid, that a person truly doesn't learn something unless Libo Chafetz, unless somewhere deep down he really has a desire for the information that he's studying. Sure, you could study a lot of information that you don't have a desire for, but when you're talking about getting a knowledge for information in a way that it becomes a part of you, that you can relate to it, that it becomes a vibrant part of you, that you can deduce with it, that you can utilize it, that you can integrate it, the premise, the bridge between the external knowledge and internalizing it within my life, the bridge between the knowledge that's external in my being, the bridge is called interest and the desire to know. So far does this go that there's, you know, there are many mitzvot in the Torah that we make a blessing before as an introduction to the mitzvah, as a petition to doing the mitzvah and to gain from the mitzvah what we need to gain from the mitzvah. But there is only one mitzvah that we, in the introductory blessing to the mitzvah that we ask God to make our involvement in the mitzvah an, enjoying, an enjoyable one. And which one is that? The learning of Torah. When we put on tefillin or when we go daven or when we do anything else, we, never, we don't petition God, God, I'm about to do a mitzvah, make it sweet. Okay? The assumption is you'll do it, okay, and it'll come and it'll, it'll grow on you and it'll develop and it'll cultivate within you a sense of sweetness. Fine. No, but when it comes to the learning of Torah, we start off the learning of Torah and we say, God, please give me an interest. Give me a sense of taste. Give me an appetite to want to learn what I'm about to learn. Now, obviously, we would only put it into the blessing as an introduction if it's a critical part of the learning process. So, what do we see from this? What we see from this is that interest and desire is a foundation, is a foundation. It is a beginning point. It is a motivation for what we become connected to, and not only what we become connected to, but how well we become connected in the educational process has a lot to do with interest. That's why anybody that's a teacher knows that motivating a student is is 90% of the game in being able to, to teach. If you can motivate a student's interest, so then you've what you've really accomplished what you need to accomplish in terms of the student. Now you've got to deliver a, a, a proper lecture, but in terms of having the student in the relationship of being able to receive and being able to learn, the motivation is the critical aspect. It's the biggest aspect that's involved. Now, if this is true, if this is true, that ratzon, defined in English as will, interest, desire, is such a critical bridge in the internalization of knowledge, that is a very wonderful fact to know, but it is also, it is also, it also creates a certain amount of trouble. Why does it create trouble? Because the same way that interest and desire and will is a bridge to be able to internalize knowledge, 
it is also a way of coloring knowledge. It also is a way of how we absorb the knowledge. In other words, if interest and desire and will had nothing to do with the educational process, education is an education and has nothing to do with desire and will, so who says that a particular desire and will would alter the purity of the educational process? But if to begin with, my capacity to internalize knowledge is based upon interest, so obviously whatever the level of interest did, the level of interest did, of interest is, or the quality of the interest is, that certainly will have an impact on the educational experience, which said in simple English basically means that when a person says that what a person wants to know and wants to understand, he will ultimately be able to understand, and what a person feels threatened in understanding and is worried to understand, he won't understand, that is a very logical statement. And as much as we might not like it, because we would like to be these aloof, abstract, objective scholars, and say to ourselves, no, anything is within my domain of, of, of honest intellectual pursuit, it's not that way. The reality is that the same way that desire and will is the bridge to internalizing knowledge, it also determines how the knowledge is received and where we're going to put the knowledge, how we're going to use the knowledge, and exactly how much of it we filter out and how much we filter in. So this component of desire and will really plays a, a very interesting role and even presents a problem. Because if a person is colored in terms of what his desire is, that could limit the honesty of the intellectual pursuit. Because to the degree that I desire to see, I will be able to understand. To the degree that I don't desire to see, it sets a limit in the educational process. Now, <clears throat> this is the reason why when the Torah addresses itself in the third, third section of the Shema, which is one of our basic prayers of belief in God and our relationship to God, God tells us, do not go and don't veer away from the path of God and pay attention to your hearts and to your eyes. Okay. Now, the part that talks about paying attention to your eyes is pretty simple. It talks about relating to human be beings and seeing human beings as objects instead of people, and then arousing within oneself okay, biology instead of human values for another person. And the Torah, therefore, says, don't look at a person with your eyes, but look at a person with your mind and with your heart. But the Torah also says, don't pay attention to your heart. So what does it mean, don't pay attention to your heart? A person is supposed to pay attention to their heart. So the Talmud says that what this means is, don't buy in to philosophies that deviate from the precepts of Judaism. That's what the Talmud says. And a very famous writer and leader of the Jewish people of, 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 of Holocaust times asked an interesting question. If we're addressing man's pursuit of all kinds of different philosophies that are strange to Judaism, so the Torah should say, don't go after your mind, don't go after your own free thinking, 
be broad-minded, but don't be so broad-minded that your brains fall out. I mean, the Torah could have different ways of saying it. But why does the Torah say, don't go after your heart? We're not talking about anything romantic here. We're talking about philosophy, strange philosophy. Why does the Torah address the heart? And basically the answer that this this commentator gave was that the problem in man's attraction to philosophies that deviate from what we believe to be the truth, the source of the problem is not in a corrupt mind or in an inferior intelligence. The problem of a person that buys into a philosophy that deviates from reality, deviates from truth, the source of the problem is in the heart of the person, in the desire, in the will. And therefore, rather than the Torah beating around the bush and telling me not to go after my mind, the Torah calls a spade a spade and says, don't go after your heart because that's where the root of the problem is. What is this, what is this communicating to us? What this is communicating to us that even though we're about to engage in a brainy process, right, each of us needs to know that the brainy process for, to a greater or lesser degree is really a hearty process. It's not only a brainy process. And that there is an influence of heart in this issue. Okay. Now, because of this, because of this, we come up against something which I, I don't think any of, anybody here is going to like what I'm going to say now. But it's something that I'll, I'll try to make it grow on you with time. All right? Judaism lives with a very interesting thing in, in philosophy and altogether in intellectual pursuit. The, uh, Judaism lives with an idea that goes something like this. Man must engage in intellectual pursuit. However, man also needs to know that the intellectual pursuit that he's engaged in has its limits. It has its boundaries. And that in spite of the fact that it has its limits and its boundaries, I can have a relationship to that which is beyond the boundary of my intellectual comprehension and that it doesn't automatically get dismissed as not scientifically proven and therefore false. Right. There is a notion out there that says anything that I can understand and anything that I can prove is reality. Anything that I can't prove by whatever system you set up, the scientific method, this method, that method, if I can't prove it and it can't hold true to those methods, so then for all intents and purposes, it doesn't have validity to be held on to in any way by man. And Judaism says very much the opposite of that. Judaism says that while man is required to take himself to the limits of his capacity in terms of intellectual pursuit, he needs to know that by definition of how the educational process works with man, there is a limit to how far he can go to be able to internalize pure knowledge and not tainted knowledge. Because if the basis of the educational process is desire and will, so the authenticity of the educational process 
will only be to the quality that the desire and the will has a purity to it. But to the degree that the desire and will is a, is a configuration of a whole mishkababel of different things that cook inside of a person, invariably it will have its influence in the quality of the educational process. And therefore a person needs to know Okay, a person needs to know that there is a defined limit. Okay, there is a defined limit for his ability to absorb the knowledge. Not about the truth of the knowledge, but the absorption of the knowledge in a real way into my system. Now, obviously the question that emerges from this is, if I have to accept limits, okay, the question is, okay, I'll accept the limit, so I'll only go as far as I can understand. But what will then be my relationship to that which is beyond my limit of understanding? What kind of a relationship will I set up to that which is beyond my limit of understanding? Is it non-existent? Is it irrelevant? Like, what kind of a relationship do I set up to it? And again, Judaism teaches us that there is a way of not necessarily understanding those, those pieces of knowledge, but there is a way of accepting them and being reconciled with them, even though they don't necessarily go through the enti entire intellectual process, and I can say that I understand them and therefore accept them. There is such a thing. And obviously the first question that comes up is, oh yeah, there is such a thing? On what basis should it, should it be accepted? On what basis? And here we come to a very, very difficult issue. A very difficult issue. And we're going to talk a lot about this issue as we proceed in this. But this has a lot to do, this has a lot to do with concepts of trust. And I'm not talking about belief, I'm talking about trust. And I'd like to explain myself and what I mean by that. Okay? Belief is a person intellectualizes and comes up with rational, logical conclusions about God, man, and his world. That's what belief is. Trust really is not at all an expression of what I understand and therefore do, what I understand and therefore feel. Trust is man's ability in his, in his being in a place where he doesn't understand to create a certain reliance that there's truth in this even without personally being able to understand. Now, the first thing that comes to mind, okay, and if you have questions as I'm going on, because I realize that I'm touching very sore points here, okay, I feel it even in myself, right, write them down or jot them down so you shouldn't forget it. But when the, one of the immediate questions that comes up with this idea of trust, okay, is why trust? Who trusts? When trust? Like, what is, what is that whole thing about? Okay? And the answer is like this. There are many answers to this, and I like to approach it in the following way. One of my basic, basic approaches in Judaism, and it's very prevalent in the book, God willing, that's going to be published in terms of prayer, is that one of the realistic ways that we can at least enter into our Judaism is to understand 
is that Judaism is a system that assists man in developing, period, a relationship with God. Many people think that I have relationships with the world, I have relationships with people, and I have obligations to God. Right? Relationship is a term that's used for any, any, anything and everything. I can have a relationship to my zucchini, I can have a relationship to my, to my homeopathic remedies, I could have a relationship with my boss, excuse me, I could, I could have all kinds of different things, but with God, the, the furthest it can go is conscience, obligation, etc., etc. And this is a terrible mistake that totally depersonalizes and takes the soul out of Judaism. Right? What Judaism really is, is engaging God in many of the same techniques with the same energy, with the same kind of stuff that makes relationships work and grow. Now, going along with that understanding, going along with that understanding, take, for example, you're in a relationship with a person and you have the desire for the relationship to grow and to become deep and to become vibrant and that the two of you should emerge, that each one should 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 be able to bring out the qualities of the other person, etc., etc., right? However, there's one slight problem. You can't trust the other person. You're suspicious of the other person. You never know what the person can do or say when your back is turned, or maybe even when your back isn't turned. You don't know. Most rational people will not go past a certain point in a relationship with another person that they can't trust. Why? Because you're exposing yourself, you're making yourself vulnerable, and you don't know if you're going to get your head chopped off or your heart tor torn out of, out of yourself because of it. So most rational people, unless they're terribly sadistic to, themse to themselves, will not allow themselves to become invested in a relationship that they don't have some basic trust in. I mean, I think that's ABC. I mean, I think it's very, very simple. Right? Now, if that, so if we could see that trust creates a screeching halt in the development of a relationship between people, it's the same in our relationship with God. And therefore... Though man is very is a powerhouse of intellect, and he could approach God and he could approach religion with, I need to understand, and anything that I can understand I can accept, and anything that I can't understand I automatically am suspicious of, think of the words that you're just saying to yourself. Right? In other words, if you incorporate okay, into your system of religion that the things that I understand I accept, and the things that I don't understand I'm suspicious of, and better yet, not only am I suspicious of it, but I will reject it and eliminate it, okay? So by definition, you're bringing into your relationship with God something that limits the depth of how far you can go. This is the reason why there are certain commandments in the Torah that God gives us, okay? And He does not reveal the reason for those mitzvot. Many people think that the reason why it doesn't reveal the mitzvot is because we don't have the capacity to understand. Maybe, maybe not. But it's clear that there were certain things that were given to us 
that we were purposely not at least given the capacity to understand them and yet expected to do them. These are referred to as the chukim. Okay? That's what they're referred to in Hebrew, the chukim of the Torah. The things that are decrees that you do because they're etched into stone, not because you can romanticize your, yourself into doing them. You do them because you were told to do them even without necessarily understanding the reason. Well, why did God bring into his relationship with man that there would be things that man would need to do without necessarily having an ability to understand what they're about? Why did God do that? Certainly God could have constructed a Torah that was totally intelligible to man. He had to select a group of mitzvot that would be unintelligible to man. He couldn't construct either an intellect that would understand it or choose just the mitzvot that were intelligent to man. But the answer that many of our commentaries give is no. God purposely chose a segment of man's investment in God that will demand of man not understanding but the element of trust. Because a relationship cannot function only out of constant understanding and constant seeing and constant clarity. A relationship has to have a component of trust as well. That doesn't mean that the entire relationship is trust without any understanding. That's ridiculous, because there has to be a basis upon which to trust. So if I can examine a hundred things that God says, and they all make sense, and then five things come by and don't make sense to me, so then I can say, hey, God has a pretty good batting average. A hundred over a hundred and five. I can, I can trust that there must be some rhyme and reason to the other five as well. So there has to be a reasonability in the trust. I'm not saying that there doesn't have to be a reasonability in the trust. But a person that can't find within himself and can't find within his personality and can't find within that conflict and tension that he has with God a capacity to let go and say, okay, I don't understand and it doesn't matter, I'll trust. There's something critically deficient if not in his philosophy, but there's something critically deficient in how much he's extended himself out to be able to have a relationship with God. And let's face it, the entire Torah and everything that God wants from us is not that we should become robots of doing things. What God ultimately wants from everything that we do is that we should ultimately find not the mitzvah, but the one that's behind the mitzvah, the God that's behind it and that we should have a relationship with the one that's behind it. So if in every mitzvah I do it because I understand it and because it's good for me and I want to do it because it sits well and I can digest it, etc., etc., a person could very conceivably be serving himself and worshipping himself and not at all having a relationship with God. So it would be defeating the entire purpose of the whole system. The system is that God creates a lifestyle that will engage man in an environment that will be able to include God and bring God in. But if I'm not going to have within that panorama of lifestyle something that's going to say to me, extend yourself out beyond your understanding and extend yourself out to the personage of God, not just to the wisdom, but to the, to the person that we believe God is, so then we've defeated our purpose in the whole system that's been established by Torah. So really what I'm saying is a very, very simple thing, but we never look at it that way when we've got questions. What I'm basically saying is that the concept of trust is critical in relationships. 
it exists within mitzvot, okay, but it becomes a major issue. When does it become a major issue? When something's happening to me that I don't like. In other words, what I'm trying to argue here is that we live with the concept of not understanding and hopefully extending ourselves out and doing in spite of understanding. It's not a foreign idea. Forget about the... If, if, if there would never be a question, if there would never be a question of why the innocent suffer, if the question would never exist, I should still be confronted with the problem. Hey, why should I do anything that I don't understand? It grates me. It's an insult to my integrity. How do we answer the question? Charlie, not everything is just a question of, 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 of integrity. We're also talking about very human things that are necessary to forge a relationship. And one of those things is stop being so cool, calm, calculated, and figuring out everything, and give a little heart into what's going on. What am I really saying? I'll, I'll say it very simply. The mind goes up to a certain point in our relationship with God, beyond which it cannot go. How do we go beyond it, and how do we relate to the material that's beyond that? We have to go... Where can, which part of the human being can go where the mind can't go? The heart. The heart can go where the mind can't go. And how does the heart go where the mind can't go? In this concept of trust. It's based on, it's, it's based on reasonability, but it is an extension of, of heart beyond mind. And the re, now, it being that, it being that, and because the ground within which trust grows is in the heart and not so much in the mind, so if you find in the same heart desires and wills that resist the acceptance of this thing, then you have, a, uh, you have an open, you have an open conflict, you have a hand-to-hand -hand combat of two tremendously conflicting things. You see, if I could resolve it intellectually, okay, so in desire I want one thing, intellectually I see it differently, okay, so they're not direct adversaries of each other. They're not directly in contradiction to each other. And I invariably will have to reckon, if I'm honest, with what intellect tells me. However, if there is a limit to where intellect goes, and beyond it, I can only proceed with heart, so if I find my heart in contradiction because of desire and will, so then I'm in a real pickle. Then I'm, a, I'm in a real place of struggle. Because the heart needs to trust in order to forge a relationship with God, but the same heart that needs to now come alive and function to complete what the mind can't is also torn in another direction, but my heart wants this and my heart wants that, and all of this is not giving me this. That's what's really taking place. Now... Where am I going to take this? I mean, this is a worthwhile thing to think about in and of its own right. In and of its own right, it's something that's important to think about. But I want to take it in a very specific direction. The specific direction that I want to take it in 
is in, a, in how to approach the subject at hand. Okay. Rav Moshe Chaim Litzato was a great Jewish philosopher from Italy. He lived in the, six, the late 1600s. Rav Moshe Chaim Litzato makes a very interesting statement. Okay, he makes a very interesting statement, and on the surface, one resists. He's talking about those difficult subjects, like where's God and those kinds of subjects. And he makes a statement that sounds like a cop-out. He says, I want you to know that in the pursuit of knowledge, you should pursue understanding the general rules and not get bogged down with specifics. That's his statement. I'm, more, I'm paraphrasing it more or less. Sounds like a cop-out. Sounds like a sloppy intellectual, right? Doesn't it sound terribly sloppy? Just get the general concept and don't work on the specifics. In one place he says, in one of his works, he says, because if you're going to work on the specifics instead of the general overviews, you'll never get out of the specifics and you'll never develop the general overviews. Okay, a practical petition to man in the system of understanding knowledge. But it does sound like a cop-out, and it sounds terribly sloppy. Right? But the reality is, the reality is that this system that Lozado is presenting for us is a system that sa- helps us with the limits that our mind has. And let me explain this. Okay? Let me try to develop this. In other words, I've presented an issue. The mind is limited. It's limited because all education is brought in through desire and will. So if the bridge in is desire and will, so if the desire and will is in conflict to the knowledge, it will color and taint the knowledge. So a person's knowledge can only go up to a certain point, and beyond that point, it has a limit in terms of being an honest educational process. How can a person trust? Okay? We start talking about the concept of trust. Now... Here we come to an interesting thing. I'm going to give an example. Okay, I'm going to give an example from the subject of why the innocent suffer that will portray the point very specifically. Okay, I'll make a statement. I will tell you that in our traditional sources, there are 12, 10 to 12 reasons that I'm aware of for the whole, the whole scenario of why a person lives through different levels of suffering. That's a fact, okay? In the session, I'm not sure exactly which number class it's going to be, but we're going to go through it, and we're going to go in detail, explain each one specifically. But I'm telling you, that's a fact. And only one of those 10, 12 reasons has anything to do with punishment cleansing. Only one. That's a fact. Now, so I go through all of the reasons, whatever those reasons are, okay, and then I come up to it, uh, I come up to the point, and I say to myself like this. Okay, good, I accept all of the reasons, I accept all of the reasons, and there's some kind of purpose and there's some kind of validity to, serve, to suffering for the reasons stated, which is not important for us to know right now, but just trust me that there are such reasons. Okay, and, but the person turns back to me and says, okay, all of the reasons make sense. And if, I could, if you would tell me with a definitive that in this case it's this reason, and in this case it's this reason, and in this case it's this reason, so everything would be fine. But I want to know, why me? Why me? Why does it have to be me? 
In other words, not everybody has to grow, and not everybody has the legitimate purposes served only through suffering. Some go through life with less suffering. Why can't I be one of those? So give all of your fancy interpretations for suffering. Say whatever you want, but why me? Okay? I need to know very specifically why I was the one that was chosen to fit into reason number four and not into reason number 11. Okay? Now, we have to recognize that when we ask that question, it's not just the curiosity of man. We have to realize that when we're asking that question, okay, that's a question that's not based in philosophy. That's a question that's based in emotion. And I'm not saying that it's not legitimate emotion. I'm not, talk I'm not passing judgment if it's legitimate or not legitimate emotion. But it's coming from a place of emotion. Because so long as a person knows that there is a rhyme of reason for suffering, the fact that I don't know why I fit into this particular reason than that one, but I do know that there's reason, I do know that there's legitimacy to the thing, so the fact that I want to know specifically in my case why was I selected at this point in time with this level of suffering, that kind of specification is really going out of the realm of the, of the educational pursuit and it's entering into the realm of, of, the, of what's beyond the mind. It's going into the, into the area that goes beyond the intellectual pursuit and is really trying to satisfy the stuff that's not in the mind but that's in the heart. That's why Rav Moshe Chaim Litzatis teaches us that the thing that's important to know is the general rules. Because as long as we're dealing with general rules, we safeguard ourselves from not kicking ourselves out of the boundaries within which the mind can work. Okay? Because once we go, once we're not satisfied, and once we reject the general rules that make sense to us, and we need specifics, and we want to know why me's, so then we're really going beyond the function within which a philosophical question can be explored by the mind. We're going into the area of heart. In the area of heart, the way that we can work, the, way that we can, the only way that we can work is with the, with the areas of trust that are built on, on a reasonability. That's where we go over there. We don't know specifically why. We're not happy with why it was me and not somebody else, etc., etc. But in there is where we have to say, hey, there's a limit to how far I can go. I took my mind to where it can go. Now I'm trying to try to explore beyond what the mind has a capacity to understand. In what is beyond what the mind has a capacity to understand, man's relationship to God requires to bring in what is a healthy component in something that's not understood in a relationship. And that healthy component is trust. And that's why when Rav Chaim Lutzata says, don't dig into specifics, but look at the general rules, why he's saying that is not only a logistical thing because you'll never get out of the specifics, it also is a very practical piece of information because it safeguards that you stay within the realm that you can, that you can figure. You stay in the realm within which you can understand. When you go out of that realm, okay, so outside of that realm, the way that the Jew needs to function is, is with some, for, some structure of trust. Now, 
There's one thing that I'm beating around the bush over here that I, at least I want to express so that you should at least know that I'm conscious of it and I'm not like just totally oblivious of it. Right? It's very difficult to talk about trusting. Okay? It's very difficult to talk about trusting because, A, I didn't have a good day in my life or I don't think that I had a good day in my life. And even if I did have a good day in my life, the miserable days in my life more than canceled out the good days in my life. So on what basis should I trust? All right? That's a totally legitimate question. Totally legitimate, and we need to deal with it. Okay? And I'm not shoving that under the rug and say, trust, 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 even though everything in, every bone in your body says, how can I trust? I'm not saying that. What I am trying to define over here is that a person needs to know when he approaches a philosophical question which parts of the question are satisfied within the limits of the intellectual pursuits and which things need to be satisfied outside of the intellectual pursuit but nonetheless need to be confronted head on. In other words, we need to confront this problem to a certain extent within the realm of the mind and we need to be able to explore this beyond the realm of the mind. Right? So these are two sections. Right? So we need to explore both sections and we need to recognize that certain answers are, are the substance of one realm and not the substance of another realm. Right? In other words, if I'm trying to find the, the satisfaction for that which the mind doesn't have the ability to explore with my mind, you'll never get there. Okay? Or if I'm trying to develop something that precisely doesn't need understanding but needs some of a person's heart and I try to look for it by, by engaging my brains, I'm not going to find it that way either. So we just need to know that we're an interesting construct when we approach a philosophical problem which is a struggle, essentially, in having a full relationship with God. I have to meet God to whatever extent I can on a mind level, on an intellectual level. I also need to, to approach God okay, on a non-mind level, on a heart level, on an emotional level. Okay? And we shouldn't mix, we shouldn't blur the boundaries between the two, expecting that the resources of one will help me in the other domain. They're not going to help. Within each domain, let's yell, scream, and struggle as much as we want. But one thing that will never lead to any profit is if we try to use the tools of one domain to help us in the other. That's not going to work. Now, I'd like to express this idea in a very interesting way. Okay? You know, in Jewish history, in biblical Jewish history, okay, there were always questions about basic precepts of, of Jewish philosophy. Right? And they date back as early as the generation in which the Torah was given to us. So, you know, this phenomena of being in struggle with precepts of Judaism, you know, it's not a product of the 1990s, and Harold Kushner didn't create it. From the time that we were a people, we struggled with the tension. We struggled with the tension of these issues. Because essentially these issues resolved develop an intimate relationship. Unresolved, they create a tension in our relationship with God. So forever, for however long man is implored to be engaged in a relationship, these things have to be issues. Just like any relationship has a certain amount of tension, hopefully healthy tension. 
and not negative tension, our relationship with God will also struggle with these issues. And in this week, interestingly enough, of course a coincidence, in this week's portion we have such an event where Karach gets up, doesn't understand different things that Moses is doing, begins conflicting himself with Moses, and ultimately gets to the point in his tirade, you know, against Moses, he gets to a point of saying that the whole Torah Moses made up and he didn't get it from God. It started off questioning one or two things, a lack of the ability to trust Moses based on his track record, and from not trusting, what happened is, even the things that were logical to assume came from God, he also eventually threw them off. Right? Which is an interesting thing, that if you're not healthy in one domain, it will also tear down the other domain eventually as well. But I'm not going to get into that right now. But it, there's an interesting story. There's an interesting story. There are two interesting stories that are told to us about Korach. It seems that Korach had a little bit talent for the arts. Okay? He was talented in, in putting on skits, putting on plays, short plays. Right? And he, he, he had two plays going. One play was he, he dressed up a whole bunch of people and he put upon them, he put upon them the garment of tzitzit, okay, the four-cornered garment. And what he did was, in biblical times, the tzitzit, the strings that hung down from the garment, were, were seven, blue str seven white strings and one blue string. That's how they were constructed. And if you're a little bit familiar with the tzitzit, the white ones act as a spine, the one of blue, you, you turn it around the white, you know, seven times tie it up, then eight times tie it up, eleven times tie it up, thirteen times tie it up. If you're Hasidic, the numbers are a little bit different. But whatever it is, you have these tzitzot, that there's lavan, which is white, and then you have the tchelis, which is blue. And the blue is wound around in different numbers around the white. So... Karach was, was a little bit creative. So Karach got these garments, these four-cornered garments. He did not put any tzitzit on the end. But what he did do is he colored the garments completely blue. In other words, the color that the one string was supposed to be, he made the entire garment blue. Right? And he had 250 people like this dressed up in these blue four-cornered garments without tzitzit. And he brought them in to ask the rabbi a halachic question, okay? Obviously, in the congreg in, in 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 the presence of a whole group of people that gathered to see what was going on, and Karach presented a brilliant scholarly question. He said, "Moses, are these four-cornered garments required to have tzitzit hanging on them or not?" Moses said, "Of course they are. Why not? Just because they're blue, they don't have tzitzit hanging on them. Why not?" So Karach answered, and Karach said like this, if you have a garment, and if it only has one string, that, that you accomplish the mitzvah of tzitzit. So if I color the entire garment blue, it should certainly be as good, it should certainly be as good as one string of blue. If the whole garment is blue, so it should be at least as good as one string of blue. So Moses, I just caught you. You made it up just like I was suspicious. And the same way you made this up, you made everything else up, and eventually Karach ditched everything. Right? Now, there's a big question with this whole skit, okay? because tzitzit has two requirements. 
there is a requirement of one blue string. So maybe Karach's argument that if the whole garment is blue, it certainly is good as one string being blue. Maybe. But what does he do with the other seven strings of white? What happened to that? Okay, in other words, Karach, granted that you're right, that you don't need the blue string because the whole garment is blue. But what happened to the other seven strings of white? So the whole thing is, is rubbish. It's nonsense. What's Karach talking about? How did anybody in his right mind buy into this argument of Karach? All right. I'll save you the details of the other story. All right. The other story was one of these romantic stories where Karach took um, a widow with her two daughters that were working out in a field. Okay? They were working out in a field. And they worked very, very hard. And finally they had a bump of crap. And Moses comes and says, okay, you have to give a tithe to the, to the priest and you have to give this off to the levy. You know, and he made it appear like by the time he was finished giving all of his charities, he had nothing left. That she had nothing left for herself. You know, this is Judaism, you know, that, uh, that we don't care about the widow, we don't care about the orphan, etc., etc. And what happened was that she, she eventually got so frustrated that she sold her field, and with the money she bought an animal, and then with the animal, the animal had grew, grew wool, you know, and uh, that had to be cut. Moses came and says, okay, you've got to give a percentage of that away also. And, so, and this was a story, in other words, Moses was portrayed as a person always coming and taking and taking and taking under, under some of the mitzvot of the Torah, making the, this poor widow look terribly unfortunate that she was losing everything, and eventually she gave everything away, sold everything away, and is left, in fact, destitutely poor. And Karach says, this can't be Torah, Moses made it up on his own, etc., etc. These are two episodes. Now, what's, what's really happening over here? What's really happening over here? What's, what's going on? What's going on is like this. Our, our sages tell us that Karach was a brilliant man. All right? Amongst brilliant people in a brilliant generation, he qualified as being a brilliant human being. Karach Pikeachaya. Okay? He was a, a, a very brilliant person. And his brilliance was his problem. What do I mean his brilliance was his problem? Our commentaries say like this. Okay? And I don't want to go into the mystical interpretations of this now. Just take it for what it's worth. That white and blue suggest two ways in which we approach our relationship with God. All right. The concept of white, the concept of white is always, is, and I, I won't go into the proofs right now, but the color white is, signifies the acceptance of something from a place of heart, from a place of trust. That's what heart is. That's what the color white symbolizes. I'm not going to go into the proofs now, but trust me. <laughs> On the other hand, blue, if we explore this, the, the significance of blue, even in the tzitzit itself, the Talmud says that, tzitzit, that the, the color blue arouses intellectual investigation because it gets me to think about nature and it gets me to think about where nature came from and eventually to explore the possibility of God versus evolution, etc., etc. Blue is seen as the color that is to engage man symbolically in intellectual investigation. The point that Karach was making was like this. 
I don't accept that there are two realms in, in man's relationship with God. I don't accept it. If a person is gifted with an intelligence of mine, everything has to be able to be reckoned with and understood via the intellectual capacity. And therefore, Karach felt that tzitzit, which is the garment of the one that has a relationship with God, if it's totally blue, that's fine. It could be totally blue, that's fine. There's no reason if a person has the intellectual firepower that he needs anything else in his relationship with God. And therefore, it wasn't so much the technical thing, A, good, the garment being blue takes care of the blue strings, but what's with the white strings? Karak wasn't at all bothered by the white strings. Because if you got enough blue, who needs white? If you have enough intelligence and if you have enough understanding, you need not incorporate in your relationship with God anything that has to do with accepting a relationship with God or investing with God out of a place of trust. You don't need it. Who is trust for in Karach's mind? For the half-wit, for the three-quarter wit, for the person that Nebuch doesn't have the intellectual firepower to understand, so you go with trust. But for the person that has his wits about him, it's totally unnecessary. Totally unnecessary. That was Karach's controversy. That was Karach's controversy with Moses. The ability, in other words, the ability to be able to recognize that there's a whole area of man's relationship with God that is based on something that goes beyond blue, that goes beyond that. And it's very, very interesting. I, most probably none of you ever made tzitzit. You know, you buy it in the store, but somebody makes it, you know. It doesn't just grow on the shelf that way. It's made, okay? You have seven of white, you have this one of blue, and you wind it around, okay? What is the spine of, the, of, of each tzitzit? The spine is white. And on a spine of white, then you begin revolving around the spine of white, the blue. Now, there's something very beautiful about that, that, that way of making the tzitzit. You know what it's suggesting to us? If you have blue, but there's no white at all, you're winding around nothing. In other words, in other words if a person cannot recognize that in his relationship with God, there has to be a component that there, where there's an extension of one's heart out to God, then all of the intellectual investigation on its own will not stand. All of the blue that you spin will eventually fall apart because sooner or later it's going to have to come to its limit. Sooner or later it's going to have to come head on with, uh, with the place where it cannot function anymore because it's not its realm to function. And then the whole thing falls apart. And I would say you say a very interesting thing that Karach started off with a difficulty of trust. In the end, he rejected even the parts of Torah that were intellectually sound. He started with the first thing that he didn't understand was a, a certain appointment that Moses made that made no sense to him. Right? In the end, he rejected much more than just the things that didn't make sense. He rejected even the things that did make sense. What does that suggest? What that suggests is that not only are they two independent realms, but that without having both, you have neither.
that you don't have either one. Let's give another example. Let's give another example. What I'm trying to point out is that no matter how strong our spiritual firepower is, and no matter how much our intellectual investigation can be solid, okay, there are two domains in man's relationship and his pursuit of relationship with God. And they're both critically important. Now, let me give another example of this. All the way back, we'll go back 5,790 years back. We'll go all the way back to the first days of creation. Yeah? And we'll go back to first man, Adam. Adam. God puts Adam into a paradise. He says, the whole paradise is for you. Eat and drink and be merry. and ha- The whole world is yours. The whole world is yours. Whatever you want. One thing you can't touch. One thing I don't want you to eat. Okay? So what do you think Adam ate? The one thing that he wasn't supposed to eat. Right? Now, our commentaries say, hey, Adam was a very spiritual individual. He was, after everything was said and done, created by God himself. He was, keep in mind, he wasn't even, quote-unquote, from human birth. Our sages tell us that he was such a spirit, he emanated such spiritual light that the angels mistaken him for God. Right? This is what our Medrash tells us. So he was, he was, he, he was up there. In, in, in spiritual stuff, okay? Intelligent, wise, clear, sensitive, everything else. Okay? And what happened? He blew it. A couple of hours after he's created, he's eating. Okay? He's eating from the one thing that he was told that he couldn't eat. It wasn't as if there were empty shelves in this paradise. All right? They were well stocked. So how does one understand it? So, no, so Rabbi Dessler, a relatively contemporary philosopher on Judaism, develops a whole thing that the first man had a, uh, an orthodox reason for sinning. Okay? He figured that if he'll eat from this, he'll bring negativity into himself, and then his struggle will be bigger, but he'll accomplish his struggle, and God will be more proud of him. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. What it all boils down to, after everything is said and done, is that Adam went out on a limb, Okay, defied his loyalty in the relationship, and the bottom line was, did he defy it? Why did he defy it? He defied it because he was very brilliant, but he could, there was still one domain that needed to be developed, the domain of trusting where one couldn't understand something. Adam could not understand the concept of restriction. He couldn't swallow the concept of restriction. He didn't know what it meant. Our sages tell us that he was thinking to himself, hey, what's this business that God doesn't want me to eat from this tree? Maybe it has some supernatural powers. Maybe God became God when he ate from this tree. And maybe this whole thing about God creating the world is a whole baloney thing. Maybe, maybe the reality of what happened is that the world was here first. God came upon this wonderful tree and by eating from the tree he became this great God and he's afraid of competition. He doesn't want me to eat from it because then he's going to have a competition on earth. Now, whatever that's supposed to mean and it's not as simple as I just made it out to be, it's not important. But what's the bottom line? Suspicion and a lack of trust. Okay? And Lazaro says, 
with all of the wisdom that Adam had, with all of the spiritual energy that Adam had, he could not stand in his relationship with God without the domain of trust. So from the very outset of creation, no matter how big we are and no matter how great we are, part of our relationship, and I'm not saying the entire relationship, but part of our relationship requires being able to engage God on non-intellectual levels as well. Now, I'm not going up the alley of, okay, Rabosai, there really are no answers to this question of why the innocent suffer, so go into the domain of trust, and that's the end of the eight-part series. That's not where I'm headed. But where I am headed, where I am headed is that we have to develop within ourselves a sense that we are going to jump into the domain of intellectual pursuit, but knowing that after we are satisfied in the domain of intellectual pursuit, that we can then go in a healthy way and say, since my answers were satisfying in the domain of intellectual pursuit, I can now comfortably go into the domain that's non-intellectual and feel comfortable to function in it and to try to develop, to try to work in, a, in that domain as well. And that's critical in this issue because this issue will take us to a certain degree outside of the intellectual domain as well. The nature of the question takes us outside of that domain. I would also point out, and this is where we're going to start the class next week, the nature of this question even takes us out of the domain of the, of the outside limits of the lifespan that we're familiar with. Right? Every question and every problem is solved within certain given boundaries. Right? And we think that the given boundaries to the question of why the innocent suffer starts at the day of birth and basically has to be resolved by the day of death. Okay? We're going to find out next week that that whole premise is also a false premise. Okay? That the, the outer limits of within which this problem needs to be solved begin way before birth and they end and they're resolved way after death, which is something that we're going to talk about next week. But by that very definition, that the, nat the outside limit of the, the outside boundaries of this problem go way beyond the normal lifespan that we're familiar with, so automatically we have to go into an area that goes beyond our intellectual pursuit. What is within the framework of birth to death so we could argue that our intellectual powers should be able to explain it. But once we have to go prior to birth and after death into areas where we don't even have an association with or experience with and be able to work in those areas, we certainly have to go beyond just the, the way that we normally investigate information because we're going into realms that we're not even familiar with. And there's a lot of trust and there's a lot of exploration that has to be done in those areas that are all part of the equation to figure out this problem. Right. So I'm just trying to develop this idea that trust is a legitimate part of one's relationship. It's not to the exclusion of the intellectual pursuit, but it is a critical part of being successful in engaging God on all levels. Right. That's the basic idea that I'm trying to bring across here. Now, there are countless, okay, there are countless examples of this idea, uh, countless examples of this idea, okay, throughout all of our history. 
And I might say one last remark before I take questions, okay? That the greatest spiritual challenge up there in, in the, in when, when the person is really up there in spiritual development, the greatest spiritual challenges that can beset man in the highest levels of spiritual evolution and growth is not in intellectual pursuits. The highest, the highest areas where man has to struggle in his spiritual evolution when he gets there is in trust. So we shouldn't think that you know, trust is either I'm in the fold or out of the fold. Trust be first becomes a serious, serious issue in, in deep ways the more knowledgeable we are, the more understanding we have, because if we build a firm base of, of a relationship that's built on understanding, it's then that we now have to stand back and say, okay, now where I'm limited, even though I've become totally comfortable with God intellectually, now I need to learn how to become comfortable with God in non-intellectual ways as well. And for intellectual people that have become satisfied intellectually, it is one humdicker of a struggle to be able to also accept God on that non-quote-unquote intellectual level as well. I, that's as much as I'm going to say for now. And obviously, I certainly satisfied being frustrated, right? That I certainly did. Because I didn't really address the issue. But this, we'll see as we move along that this is a critical, critical component of how we get out of this maze, out of this philosophical maze. Right. I'll gladly take some questions. Yeah. What's the story that you told about with all the parts that were Oh, okay. Okay, I'm sorry I didn't go back to that story. This, that, the part of that story is also a very similar idea because our sages tell us that precisely in all of the things that we're required to give away to the poor and to the priests and to the Levites, God tells us, trust me, that if you give these things away, you won't have less. In the end, you will have more. These are mitzvot that they're not only to make provisions for the ones that are needy. Okay? They are also... They're also intended to develop, to develop within the person that's giving the concept of trust. Letting go of measuring things in material ways and measuring things in non-material ways. You know, you go over to a person and you say, how much money do you have in your bank account? A thousand dollars. Okay, there's a dinner that, no. There's, there, I, I want a donation of a hundred dollars. Okay, okay. So he says, listen, if I give you a hundred dollars, there's nine hundred dollars in the bank account. Okay. So I, and I need a thousand. So he says, don't worry. It'll come back to you and you'll have a thousand. So he says, get out of here. You're off the wall. If you take a hundred off a thousand, you're left with nine hundred. Right? So our sages tell us that part of the investment in giving where we need to give is to trust. And our sages say that if we really trust in our giving, we will never even in the material sense have less. Right? This is what our sages say. Our sages, in fact, have a play on words. There's a word in Hebrew which means a tenth, which is aser. That's the verb tense of tithing, aser. It's also interesting that the word aser also can spell the word ashir, which means rich. So our sages say, aser bishvil shetis asher. Give off the tithes so that you should become wealthy. So the, the, the concept being that the whole... The, all of those mitzvot that were part of Karach's play 
were all mitzvot that gained their legitimacy ultimately through trust. And that's precisely what Karach was out to destroy. There is nothing that needs to engage me in a relationship that's based on trust. Everything has to be rational. Everything has to be logical. And if giving is not logical and not rational, it need not be done, it need not be observed, and it was not made up by God. Okay? And that's, if you look at the story, I didn't want to go into all of the details of the story, but she destroyed herself, not the mitzvah. She got frustrated and she couldn't trust, and therefore she sold off her capital, and she got herself less and less financially solvent because she couldn't trust and hold on. If she would have had the trust, she would have held on and it would have come back to her. But because she didn't trust, it wasn't the mitzvah that destroyed her financial solvency. It was her lack of ability to trust. Okay? I can't go through all the nuances of the story, but it's very clear. If you'll study the story, it's in the Yalkut Shimoni. It's not in the, it's not in the regular Madrash. It's in the Yalkut. Okay? You see the details of the story. You see how she sold herself out of financial solvency, not the mitzvah. It was her reaction in not being able to trust that destroyed her financial solvency, not the mitzvah itself. Yeah, Lee. Well, that, that, uh, that story had, just had no place in where they were in the midbar. That, that story or the laws of uh, tithing came, comes about when they built the uh, Beit HaMikdash or, or when they entered into the land of Israel. So that story was a whole... Uh, some of it was, but some of it wasn't. Some well, of it wasn't. They, some of they didn't need to do any of that. They, they didn't have any of that in the midbar. Okay, even if you would be true, I'm, I'm saying that some of that was relevant even in the desert. That's number one. Number two, I won't go into the details, but some of it wasn't, some of it wasn't relevant. But what was, rele what was w the mitzvot that come from the earth weren't relevant in the desert, but the mitzvot that were related to animals were relevant in the desert. But I'm not going to get into that. Even if, even if what you're saying would be true, that it was totally non-relevant, but from a philosophical perspective, if this is Torah, and you make a claim that this is what God gave, okay, if it is or isn't relevant, if it is or isn't practical in this particular setting, doesn't really matter. Just as long as in some setting it's relevant, I can use it as a piece of material either to, to prove its legitimacy or its illegitimacy. In other words, even though it wasn't relevant today, okay, so it wasn't the current events of today, but if this is Torah and this is what we're expected to live by when we will get to the land of Israel, it could still be brought up as a philosophical issue and become a point of contention. Is this man-made or is it God-made? Do you follow what I'm saying? It's just not, it's not, the crisis, it's not something that needs an answer this moment. But on a philosophical plane, time is not the issue. On a philosophical plane, it's not if it needs to be answered now. It's, is, is it true or isn't it true? It doesn't matter in which setting it's, it's going to be relevant, but is it true or isn't it true? You see what I'm saying? And that's, that's the point that's being made. Yes? Oh, you might be sure that if it isn't, I'll tell you.
I was using why me as, a, as an example. It's not the only example, but go ahead. Because it's in the that that man is already limited in, yeah. What is I mean, what is what your approach is why why me for this particular reason? Because you feel that that way in the future perhaps you understood that it wouldn't it wouldn't be you again. I'm not sure what you mean. Could you explain that last the last two sentences if you could explain it a drop more? Okay, okay. We'll see when we go through the reasons. We'll see when we go through the reasons that, that any knowledge that man needs, okay, to legitimately alter his situation, he's provided with, okay? And the information that won't make a, a difference in legitimately altering the situation, he doesn't nece- he's not necessarily provided with because God won't want him to alter it. Okay, so we're going to talk about this whole thing. I don't know if it'll be next week or the week afterwards, but we'll talk about the idea that there are certain situations that we hope to alter, okay, but that we not ne- we don't necessarily have the power to ever change. And the question is, what kind of an attitude should we develop to something that we ultimately cannot change, okay? And when do we make the calling? And what does it mean that we can't change a certain situation? And what's the significance behind that? That we'll get into that, okay? But you're making a premise that if you know reasons, you can alter things, and uh, and that all things need to be altered if they are suffering, and that's not so simple, all right? And that's what we'll get into. All right, we should really stop here. Okay, enjoy the refreshment.